Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Passing Dimes. We're really excited for today's guest. He's got many years of coaching experience, including over 17 years in the NCAA, where he's coached at the University of Florida, Oklahoma, TCU, and St. Leo University. He was involved in the beginning of USA Beach High Performance, and he's currently in Alberta coaching his own club, Team Alberta, and anyone who loves the sport of volleyball. Please welcome to the show, Eric Peterson. Eric, thanks for doing this, man. Oh, I appreciate it, man. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, you and I have known each other a couple of years here, but uh, I'm excited where this can go because uh, we can take many turns here. But how about for, for me and the <laughs> listeners, we just take it from the top. Uh, where would you say you grew up and what was your relationship with sport as just like a, a young guy coming through before you fell in love with volleyball? So I was lucky enough to grow up in the state of Hawaii. Um, I'm from the U.S. and um, I don't know if that's a point of contention up here right now, but uh well, you said lucky enough to grow up out there. Hawaii is a unique place. There's not a lot of pro sports like there is in most of the rest of the U.S. So whatever the University of Hawaii is good at is kind of where people fall as far as their loyalties. And, uh, you know, I was lucky enough to grow up with a really, really strong men's program at the University of Hawaii, as well as a women's program historically. And so kind of grew up around the sport, watching the sport, um, you know, seeing these athletes and having an opportunity to kind of go to camps and, and be around them. Um, it was a, a unique sort of microcosm. It's not like, Oh, you're six, six, you play basketball and Hawaii. It's like, Oh, you're six, six, you play volleyball. And it's, it was kind of a very unique sort of situation. Um, I, I did move around a little bit, uh, with my father, he was in the military. So, we did live in Europe for a bit, in Washington State for a bit. We did a year in Atlanta, but we always kind of ended up back in Hawaii in between. So I always had that connection to the sport and a strong sort of background, I guess, if you will, with the clubs, the training, the athletes there, and especially at the university level, how much we were able to kind of get around them and learn from them uh, as much as we could. Uh, in Canada, um, I think it was 2009, 2010, we were lucky enough to host a Norseka, and I think the two best players on Team USA were Crab and Bourne. So our technical director came back from watching, and we were just trying to go down the rabbit hole of what is the Outrigger Canoe Club, because we're like, wow, the, we recognize their names, and they were awesome at indoor, but they were also going to re uh, represent USA at some Youth World stuff. I'm wondering, with a Hawaii uh, guy background, were you ever part of Outrigger? Did you ever just spend time there playing? Uh, so, actually, Chris Crab who is Taylor and Trevor's dad was my high school coach. Um, funny enough. And, you know, did have a chance to, to get out to the outrigger courts. Um, you know, if you Google it and, uh, you know, jump on there, there's two courts kind of just off to the South side of a parking lot. And then they have the baby court, which is like the farthest South, which is, you know, kind of a mini court. It has the ability to adjust, adjust the net height to a bunch of different levels where you can basically just pay a really good version of short court. Um, but yeah, I had a, I had a chance to go out and play a ton of nooners. Nooners is kind of what they did for all the guys who wanted to play at lunchtime. That was like their lunch break. So, I mean, I've gone out there and I've played, you know, with Chris Crabb with Kevin Wong, like with a bunch of those guys and just, you know, having a chance to go out and play at outrigger. It's kind of cool. Um, it's, it's very much like the old school stuff like you see on Magnum PI. And I think Outriggers at courts are actually there. And Sinjin Smith is in an episode where he's playing with Thomas Magnum uh, on the Outrigger court. So it's kind of like a, uh, it's a rite of passage, if you will. Like your, your goal is to kind of get out there and be like, well, I'm here. Like, and, and you know, in all actuality, it's not the greatest facility, but it's kind of historic. You know, it's like Ebbets Field or one of those sort of things. It's like, oh, this is this is the history of the sports is where it started. So, uh, yeah, I have had a chance to go out and play with a lot of those guys. And, you know, by the time I was playing there, I was well beyond what I would consider my prime. But, uh, you know, when I was playing there, when I was younger, you definitely were just out there just taking advantage of every opportunity and saying, Oh, this is cool. I just want to do this. And it's like, oh, I can play him. I can play him. I can play with this guy and I can play against this guy. And, I'm going to get my ass kicked by so-and-so and, -so. and <laughs> you just kind of, it's just how it goes. You know, you realize as a kid that they're going to beat up on you and that's a good thing. 
Now, do you think that shaped uh, any of your coaching philosophies as you got a little bit older? Because the the more I read about outriggers, it just feels like kind of what either road hockey or what baseball was in my hometown, where like everybody could play old, played with young. Sometimes you get beat up on and then you get better and you start beating up on other people. Like it just seems like a, a community sense where you, you didn't need a coach. It was kind of self-organized. Like you just played because you wanted to play. And, and knowing how much you love the sport, I, I'm curious if you look back at your Hawaii days and go, yeah, that really instilled just a, a love of volleyball, whether I'm playing two on two, three on three, sixes, whatever version it is, right? Yeah, for sure. And I mean, I think, you know, we could all kind of look back is I think the first time I ever really went down there, I might have been like grade eight, grade nine, something like that. And we still didn't really have a good grasp of what the beach game was. And, you know, every time we tipped the ball, they would call it, you can't do that. And we're like, oh, what do you mean? You just don't want to lose to the kids kind of thing. So, you know, it, it was kind of one of those cool things you look back and you're like, you just wanted to compete at a high level and you, you were playing against these guys that were really good. You wanted to beat them, but yet they were, they, they didn't take it easy on you for sure. You know, it was like they, they held you accountable. They held the level to, you know, a certain standard. And it, it definitely is something that sort of resonates. Whereas, yeah, you don't just go through the motions, definitely stay at this level and, you know, make sure that people can do things like this. If you want to play the game, you have to play the game. You can't just come out, you know, show up and do this, that, or whatever. It's like, this is, this is a roll shot. You can't tip, tip. you know, this is a poke. You can't tip. And it, they, definitely worked on kind of educating us as the kids but they still get your asses <laughs> for sure for sure so as you uh, started to grow up a little bit uh was volleyball your main thing like you mentioned you, you were a bigger cat so i mean maybe you did get pulled and maybe played uh, like school level basketball or anything but when you were competing and thinking about playing sport maybe at a post-secondary level was it always going to be indoor beach volleyball for you yeah for sure um it was definitely indoor for me. Uh, I was, you know, kind of all over the place as a kid, like many of us are. Um, I, I happened to be, I think I was on Kauai the summer between grade eight and grade nine. And at that point, every kid wants to surf and all that sort of stuff. And ended up having a pretty crazy incident where in my mind, you know, I almost drowned. Maybe it was worse or maybe it wasn't as bad as I thought it was, but was trying to surf, pulled into a, late, a, a wave late, got thrown over the falls. It was one of those, like, don't know where the bottom, don't know where the top is. Just kind of paddle and go crazy. And ended up making it back to shore and, you know, started playing again with some of the friends. It's like, okay, there's a, there's a beach court here. Started playing a lot of beach. And it's like, okay, cool. Now this is what I want to do because I'm a little freaked out of the water right now. Um, so, you know, having the having the chance to kind of recognize that early kind of going into high school. Um, I think like every, you know, grade nine kid in the States, I wanted to play football and I made it about three weeks, maybe four weeks into a football season. And then I was like, yeah, that's not really for me, especially growing up in Hawaii where I'm being chased by a bunch of Samoan guys who are like three times my size. And I was like, yeah, no, can't do this. Um, ended up deciding to leave the football team talked to the volleyball coach again and was like, Hey, you know, I'll just be the manager. I'll do whatever. So he kind of basically let me practice. I didn't play at all. And, uh, you know, my grade nine year and then grade 10, it was like boom, started on the varsity program and played the whole way. But yeah, it was one of those weird things where I don't really think it was what I initially planned. It just kind of happened, I guess, if you will. And I never, never really got into basketball. It wasn't really my thing. Like we played around a little bit. We all had our, you know, dunk contests at practice and stuff like that, but it wasn't, it wasn't one of those, Oh yeah, I'm going to play basketball. Uh, I love this. Like, this is my thing. And volleyball is just kind of where it stayed. And what was the recruiting like to find post-secondary? Cause, uh, I'm amazed how good the U.S. is at men's volleyball and how limited the opportunities are. So for you to land at uh, Concordia eventually, what was kind of your journey to find a spot to play? Oh, God. That's sort of a very, very unique one. Um, I was committed to Ohio State, actually. And um, had you know, I was all ready to go there. And I had uh, a teammate I played club with. And he had sent his video in to a university to Concordia and the coach reached out and was like, who's your friend? 
Um, you know, so basically went from a, you know, possible walk-on position at Ohio State, which, you know, unfortunately in men's volleyball, it, you know, at that time, the majority was walk-on positions. You might've gotten, you know, a grand here and there, but it was, you're, you're, it's basically a, a glorious walk-on sort of situation. And, you know, talk to this coach. He's like, oh yeah, I want to put you on scholarship. I want you to start right away. This, that, the other. And I was like, you know, I didn't really know any better. Um, the recruiting at that point in time, there wasn't a lot of, wasn't a lot of really good feedback and input. So, you know, you kind of just did what you did and kind of lived with it, I guess. Um, and ended up out there and had, you know, a pretty good career and did some okay things. You know, I had a chance to start my freshman year and, you know, kind of learned a lot, I guess, if you will, like learning by attrition. All right, well, this works. That doesn't work. These guys are good. Let's do this. Let's do that sort of stuff. Um, and, you know, kind of just figured things out. So, um, you know, getting out there and having a chance to play all four years, I think was an amazing experience. And, you know, again, it was just a lot of times you, you got to build that camaraderie with a lot of other programs and, you know, get to know so many teams, especially when you play conference matches and, you know, getting out there and playing with a bunch of those guys and learning as much as I could. I think it was just good to say, Hey, you know, this is, this is where we are. And this is what we're going to do. And yeah, I could have done this, but I'm going to do what I, you know, whatever I can to excel at this level and, you know, just leave it all out there. And, and what was the level of your conference like? Because I think, um, people our age uh, will remember a time in NCAA men's volleyball where it was basically the West ran the show. And I know there was a year where I think Penn state took one, but uh, it, it was pretty unique. I, I'd say around like 2013 or 14 when like Loyola won and Ohio state run, but like it, it felt like forever the, the championship went through uh, California. Right. So just with your conference at Concordia, did you get a chance to battle them in preseason or exhibition or was your conference a battle, but you always knew guys, if we're going to take one down, like we got to go through the big dogs out West. I mean, our, our big dog was Penn State. That's just how it was. And, you know, for the longest time, you know, how it, I think it kind of still is a little bit in the East. Um, as I was getting up towards uh, my senior year, Princeton really, really did well. They had some solid recruiting classes. They brought a ton of kids in from California. So I think it was my my senior year where Princeton made it to the Final Four. But it was pretty much a given that you were – you know, you were battling with Penn State year in and year out. And, you know, that was who set the bar for the East Coast and, you know, the conference that I played in out at the EIPA. And they had won, I think, the first year Princeton won, or sorry, not Princeton, but Penn State won in 1995. I think they won. And it was kind of like the shock to the world moment where a team from, you know, California did not win. Because um, I think after Penn State won, I think BYU won a few titles. And that was kind of like the first like three years where a team from California didn't win. Because I think it was you know, UCLA at that point in time was pretty much if you went to UCLA, you were guaranteed a ring in one of your four years. Um, Pepperdine was really strong. Obviously, USC, Long Beach State. Um, but yeah, that's the first, I think, when Penn State kind of cracked that. And then BYU had a really, really strong run there for a while. But uh, yeah, I mean, we kind of knew out there on the East Coast, like Penn State was our measuring stick. And that's, you know, kind of who we strived to to get to. And, you know, when we go out and we were playing on the road at Penn State, that was always a big deal because, you know, they packed the wreck, uh, which was, you know, rec gym that they played in. I mean, there was four or 5,000 people in there and they still do that to this day. And, you know, you just kind of know there's this is if we want to do this this is who we're going through and again you gotta just gotta do it just gotta get it done um so for you did you ever pursue uh professional indoor or going overseas or anything or what did you do right after graduation do you know that coaching was going to be your path i never ended up trying to go overseas and play as much as i wanted to i just i think it's a very unique at, at least at that point in time trying to go overseas was you had to know the right people and there weren't a lot of people to know, if you will. So I, I kind of skipped out on that. Um, 
and was playing a ton of beach. And then, you know, the coaching aspect kind of opened up and I jumped into that, like a high school role and probably like 99 or whatever that was. Uh, so uh, after you graduated, where was home base? Because obviously you're still playing beach. Like, were you trying to play AVPs or just some domestic circuits or the local state stuff? Like, where did you kind of settle down and continue playing beach and then kind of start uh, your coaching career? So at that point, I kind of settled down in, in the, on the East Coast. Uh, I played a bunch of, back in the day, the Toyota Tour was really big. Um, kind of like Maryland, Delaware, up through New York, um, you know, down to like Myrtle Beach, you know, Virginia Beach, stuff like that. So I was playing a bunch of stuff on the East Coast. Um, and then I had, like many kids do at that point in time, moved back in with my parents. And at that point, they were in Atlanta. So just started coaching high school, started coaching club just because as you know, you're a gym rat, you want to be in the gym, you want to coach, you want to do things. So, um, had a chance to get in the gym and, and coach some high school stuff. And from there took a team down to university of Florida for team camp and met the coaching staff there and got to know them pretty well. That's when, you know, I was able to move down to Gainesville and work with the, the Florida Gators in 2003. And that was the year they made it to the national championship match. And I was the volunteer coach. So basically it was, you know, for a volunteer coach at, at that point in time, you're a practice player. You know, you're, you're there to basically challenge the team. Um, you know, I got to sit in on, you know, video sessions, uh, practice planning, you know, working on scouting reports, doing, you know, film work for all American videos, things along those lines. So was able to kind of, you know, jump into that sort of stuff and get to understand the back end of it. Um, because I feel like a lot of the people that I've met that have gone into coaching, especially as former players, they think coaching is just the, the two hours, the three hours they spend in the gym, you know, or, you know, on the court, it's not the, Oh, there's 12 hours that we're in the office and we're in meetings and we're doing video and we're doing this and we're doing that. So it was able to luckily, you know, find a chance to, see that aspect of it from a fairly early on, you know, point of view. Um, you know, that first year it was like literally kind of just sit here, shut up, pay attention sort of thing. Um, so that was kind of cool to, to be able to do that there in Florida. And then from there, uh, we met with the, the USA coaches who were at the final four. And from there I was invited out to Colorado Springs to work with the, the women's team before they went out to Athens, uh, for, the 2004 Olympics. So just to circle back on Florida, cause I'm always curious, uh, cause obviously a, a fantastic sports school in terms of, uh, I think even casual fans would know them as football and basketball and the women's volleyball is always crushing For it. Sure. Um, behind the scenes, what were the facilities like that had to be like a professional sports team, right? Yeah. Uh, you know, it, yeah, it's the facilities at, uh, what we'll call like, you know, your power five schools and who knows what conferences are doing nowadays. But, uh, you know, if you are a football driven school, you have big time facilities, um, you know, the, between athletic training, between the weight room, all of that sort of stuff. Like it is a, it is a world that most people would not even recognize in their wildest dreams. Now, uh, I just want to circle back to your one comment, because I do think people need to understand this. So you going from an athlete into the coaching world and knowing that it did turn into scouting reports and everything else like that, like, what was the most mind blowing thing to you? Like how much maybe goes into practice planning or the individual stuff that goes into it? Like you, you going from a player, obviously you had a high performance experience, but I am curious, uh, what was kind of like this? Oh, I didn't know you did that when you got into the, the hours that coaches were putting in behind the scenes. I, I think it, for me, uh, honestly, it was a lot of the video. Um, back then, I, I think now we're very, very lucky. There's a lot of stuff between like volumetrics and things along those lines. Like we use data volley and data volley was very much a, a code for a keystroke and a keystroke for a skill and everything you could imagine from, you know, watching a match video, you know, so if you're talking, we watch a three set match. We're getting 60 pages of data based on the amount of coding we're doing. Um, 
if this person passes off their left shoulder and the ball is passed to this zone and they set this ball, the hitting percentage goes here, it goes there. And, you know, really starting to understand tendencies based on things along those lines. And then also, you know, kind of understanding too, as much as you want to read into things, when things you know, go out the window. It's like, okay, tendencies are one thing, but when they get to this situation, it's just a play ball sort of, there's no tendencies. There's no, they set this person, you know, unless you have a kid who's getting 11, you know, 11 sets per, you know, per rotation or something silly like that. All right. Well, they're in the front row for these. We're going to set her this many times, you know, and we did see that, but you know, a lot of times it's easy to predict tendencies in situations. And then sometimes it's like, you just got to throw it out the window and play. Um, but really kind of seeing how much went into that from the back end on, you know, how much do we look at plus minuses and rotations, uh, you know, and how much do we start to think about, okay, if we're in this rotation and they're this rotation, if we match up our best rotation versus their worst, their worst rotation, and then we have six rotations, where do our plus minuses fall? And, you know, just the amount of analytics that went into it and okay, if they start here, we start here, right? Well, they lost this set. So where do they normally go to in this? If they start in row one, and they lose a set, do they stay in row one? Do they switch to row five? Do they make these flips? And, you know, all these things that as a player, you're just like, I just play, I don't care. But as a coach, you're like, okay, well, what are they going to do? How do we counteract what they're going to do? And then how much do we weigh what our strengths are versus what we think they're going to do? So do we just stick with our strengths versus do we try to, you know, counterbalance and attack their weaknesses and, you know, just kind of that chess match of it. And, you know, as a player, I don't think you really realize that. Um, but as, you know, a, a kid being able to sit there and watch, you know, these coaches that have won, you know, 11 straight SEC titles, and you're like, oh, my God. Okay, this is this is a whole different ballgame. It's not just, okay, let's practice. It's like, this is what we're going to practice. This is why. This is this team we're playing, this is, dude, you know, and just how they implement things like that into practices without even saying we're practicing against this team. It's, this is just how we're going to build the practice this week. And then it's like, Oh, Hey, so we defended this all week. This is what they do kind of thing, you know, and kind of building from there. Yeah. And I know. I know like we said as a player, no idea that that stuff happened. <laughs> <laughs> For sure. For sure. I know we got a lot to cover and I do want to bounce around a little bit. So uh, you, you get an opportunity to work with USA Volleyball and I'm just Googling the roster here. So I believe uh, Toshi was the coach at that time. This would have been pre-Hugh. Yep. So you still kind of leaving your playing career, starting your coaching career. I know you got hours, but now you're in a gym with like Logan Tom and Heather Brown. And I think um, I think they called her Keba Phipps was there, who's been on the yep. like national team since like the 80s. Like what was it like being in that gym? Like, were you, uh, were you a ball bopper just helping shag? Were you running drills? Like what was your role with that squad when you first got in the gym? I, I believe you said it was in Colorado, right? Yeah. Colorado Springs. So now you're going from Florida where you're at sea level to Colorado Springs where you're at altitude and you know, the ball travels different, this, that, the other. So, uh, there were a lot of learning curves there, if you will, like, you know, I was running drills for them and I was not running drills the correct way. Again, I mean, anybody who's worked for Toshi would know that, you know, you hit the ball this way. So, I mean, I think there were times when I moved out there where he had a little square taped on the wall and I had to hit a thousand balls into the square before I can go get lunch. Like after the first like morning session, you know, it's like, if you're going to run a drill, you need to hit the ball where I want you to hit the ball kind of thing. <laughs> so it was literally like ball card, ball, 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 ball. It's just like hitting into this square sort of thing and just kind of learning the tempo and learning to run the drill. So it was, I mean, they very much ran kind of like, uh, you know, their, their practices were pretty intense, were pretty crazy. Um, it was very intimidating as a new coach, if you will, to, step in and be like, hit this and hit this. And they're like, ah, <laughs> you, know, you kind of, you get the yips, if you will. That's kind of what we called them where all of a sudden it's like, you're trying to hit a ball. And it's like, ah, I hit my thumb. I hit my pinky. I can't hit the ball where I want it to. Um, 
so yeah, that was, uh, that was pretty intense. Uh, I definitely, you know, was brought on to, to run drills, but also to play against, you know, the athletes as well to kind of simulate their competition that they were going to be competing against. So that was much more comfortable, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, it was, uh, it was quite the learning curve, quite the experience. Um, you know, I think at that point in time, you know, Doug Beal was still coaching the men's program. Hugh was an assistant with the, with the, with the men's team. So, you know, got to know them pretty well, which was nice. And, um, they definitely stepped up and saw some of the struggles I was going through at times. And it's like, Oh, you're still here hitting balls. You know, so a little bit of a, you know, you got this versus, you know, the little bit of like, the, you know, the poke in the ribs, like, come on, why are you still here sort of thing? So it was kind of fun. And we all, the men and the women shared the same office. So, you know, it's like all the desks were kind of in the same office, similar to, you know, how you guys are out in Downsview. You know, so it was kind of one of those, like you get in there and everybody's just sitting there looking at you and kind of give the little head shake. And <laughs> but yeah, that was, uh, that was quite the experience for sure. There was a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of the little voice in the head where you're like, should I even be here? What am I doing? Why am I here? <laughs> now, as you look back and you've obviously coached a, a bunch since then, was there anything you took away? Because I think those who love, uh, for lack of a better term, like the Japanese style are all in on it. I've just never got on board with like the coach almost gets as many reps as the athletes because you're just delivering balls the whole time. And it is fast paced, but it is block training, very specific, very repetitive. So I am curious, did sure. you, did you get on board with it or, uh, was there anything you could take from that experience that you still apply to your own coaching? Uh, you know, I, I definitely learned to appreciate a lot of it, um, with the block training and with a lot of the, I think a lot of the fundamentals are, kind of watered down a bit. And I think one of the great things that, you know, like the Japanese do and a, and a lot of the, the Eastern programs do is they are very specific with what they want and what they're trying to do. So a lot of like, like you said, you know, I had to hit whatever a thousand balls was, I want you to take this ball two feet outside of your right knee. And I want you to do that over and over and over and over again. You know, so when they're in that situation, when it be, does become a live situation, oh, this is easy for them to repeat. Um, you know, and it was a lot of like, right knee, right knee, right knee. Okay. Left knee, left, knee, left. Knee. You know, so it was a lot of these, getting these athletes comfortable with making that specific play when they're in a pressure situation and need to make that play. Not just like, Oh, okay. I'm playing live. I made this read and Oh no, I'm not in the right spot. You know, it's like, I'm here. I'm set. This ball is going here. I know how to play this ball. Cause I've done it a thousand times of practice. You know, I, 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 so I appreciate a lot of that. And I think there's definitely a time and a place for the block training versus, you know, sort of the live aspect of it. And, you know, personally, I still like to implement, you know, some of the block training because I think there's a little bit of wishy-washiness in the technical foundation in some of the athletes I've worked with. But I don't know if I could say that that is the end-all be-all, if you will. I feel like there were a lot of coaches that came through and watched a lot of what Toshi was doing and repeated what Toshi was doing without understanding the why of what Toshi was doing. And, and I feel like that's something that happens quite often. It's like, Oh, so somebody did this and they just, we'll just do that with our team versus the, why is this happening? Why are they doing this? Why are they training this? which is, Oh yeah. So-and-so did this, let's do this. And so, I mean, I definitely appreciate a lot of that. And I think that there's, like you said, a time and a place for it. I think there's the live play, you know, should is important as well, but there's a lot of things that I think without kind of like some of that block training, you can't implement in a live situation. Um, do you need with Olympic athletes? I don't know. <laughs> well, that's what's interesting, right? Is they they go from Toshi yeah. to Hugh McCutcheon and now Karch, and it's like if it's not a one eighty, it's close to between Toshi and Karch with Hugh in the middle there, right? Well, gosh, there was Jenny in between, I think. Jenny oh, Lane sorry, Lane. in in eight there, yeah, yeah, yeah. So it was, yeah, it was it was Toshi to Jenny to Hugh, and you know Hugh was the total one eighty from Toshi, like complete one eighty. <laughs> 
because Hugh was still with the men in 2008. Yeah, sorry, that's the year they took and, it down, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, like I said, there's so many different philosophies that I think could be implemented. And it's just a matter of finding the right mix in the right time and, you know, figuring out what's going to be sort of like that best recipe for the team that you have. But, you know, like I said, I, I think I definitely do kind of appreciate some of the block training. I don't know that much of the, you know, 10,000 reps, if you will, the Malcolm Gladwell, but I think it's hard to implement a lot of things if you don't have the foundation and, you know, I think should, should that stuff be done at a younger age possibly, but you know, is there too much rep that versus play, you know, who knows? I mean, that's a, that's one of those conversations that you can have for years on end. <laughs> for sure. And I think uh, myself included, but I think all coaches need to stop treating it like it's, right or wrong and i think that we need to start having a time and place conversation because i I think uh some people get too dug in on what the philosophies are right yeah i think that's exactly it time and place is probably the best way to say it and you know i had a one of the coaches i used to work for was you know he kind of went back and forth between like the toshi and the other stuff and you know he always used the baseball analogy it's like okay well if if a runner is stealing second and the only time I work on throwing out the runner as a catcher is in the game, I'm probably not going to be very good at it. You know, so it's like, you have to get that rep. I mean, it's, it's boring. It's, it's a block training, you know, pitch catcher turns, throws out the runner at second catch turn, throw out the run, catch turn, throw out the runner. If you don't train that when you're not in a live situation, you're not going to be able to perform that when the live situation, you know, comes to fruition. So yeah, who knows? It's, it's one of those things. Uh, so you're, you're progressing. Uh, I, I may have it wrong, but I think one of your next major stops was at Oklahoma. So did you feel like your your Florida experience and then your U.S. national team, like how did you get in at another big school uh, coaching at that? I think you went to another Final Four with Oklahoma. Is that right? Uh, no, we, we went to uh, four straight NCAA tournaments. Uh, did not make a Final Four there. Um, Oklahoma was a situation where I, when I, as a player, my, my head coach was very good friends with the, uh, the head coach at Oklahoma at the time at a, at another university. So, um, you know, in building the relationships and learning to, you know, kind of keep in touch with people. It was, uh, somebody that I kind of kept in touch with as he went from different universities that he was at. And, you know, it was kind of one of those like, Hey, when you need an assistant, give me a call, give me a call sort of things. And, you know, we, we played against each other when, you know, when I was at uh, university of South Florida and he was at Southern Miss university. Um, I had moved on to UCF and he had moved on to Oklahoma and we kind of just kept in touch. And, you know, I finally got a call one day and he was like, you know, this big Colombian guy, he played on the Colombian national team, you know, six, five, you know, 250, just the giantest of dudes that you would ever imagine. And he's like, Hey, you want to come coach? You want to be my assistant? And I was like, yeah, whatever. Shut up, Santi. I don't believe you. <laughs> and ended up, you know, going out on an interview. And like I said, taking the, at that point in time, the big 12 was moving to mandatory data volley. So all of the big 12 schools had to then use data volley and provide data volley for, you know, video exchange and all that sort of stuff. And, you know, basically showed up and, you know, luckily with my background was able to open up a file folder and be like, this is a 62 page, you know, match report from this, 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 this. And he kind of looks at me, he's like, you know how to do this? I'm like, yep. He's like, all right, you're hired. (laughs) He's like, you deal with that. I don't want to do that stuff. (laughs) you know, very much the, I will, I will run the drills. I will, you know, do that sort of stuff. You know, you, you take over the scouting reports, the, you know, the, the match management, like that sort of stuff. And, um, you know, kind of going from there, you know, it's a lot of like with data volume, real time stuff on the indoor side, you're able to say, okay, this libero might be great, but in this rotation, they're only signing out at 10% because, she just doesn't pass well in this rotation. It's like, why are we serving the libero? Because they're certainly siding out at 10%. So we're getting, you know, 90% opportunity to run a transition offense against her. 
you know, maybe the next rotation, they side out at 90%. So we don't serve her just little things like that. But it was kind of unique how we were able to get the live information from data volley and be able to make changes, you know, on the fly like that, you know, based on passers in rotations and whatever zone that they're in. Um, you know, and it was something that he was more of a, a player and didn't really care about numbers. It was more like feel. And it was kind of like feel versus stats and, you know, that sort of stuff. So, um, yeah. Even what it's done the last, like, five, ten years in terms of getting stats on the bench, I'm wondering, were you the one live collecting it? And then how were you reporting it back to the coach? Because uh, you were maybe on the early days of doing it on the bench, were you not? We had... We had a live inputter who kind of sat at the computer and we had a connection to a live computer on the bench. And we had somebody who was way smarter than I am, who knew how to build spreadsheets. So we could put in, you know, the passers and the athletes by rotation and side out percentages and, you know, passing like this kid's still passing a two six, but they're siding out at a low percentage, you know, and things like that. So it was just one of those things that. You know, I think we were lucky enough to have the person who inputted a lot of the data into, you know, into data volume, into the keystrokes to where we were able to implement those things real time. Um, You know, again, we never got into the headsets and and that sort of stuff. Like I feel like a lot of the, the indoor coaches have now, but, you know, when we, you know, I think the last year that I was at Oklahoma was 2014. And I mean, we were, we were getting live, like up to date. This is the rotation. This is what they're passing. This is their side out percentage, you know, all, all of that sort of stuff. So, you know, we would, you know, we could be picking on who would be a hot hitter, but her hitting percentage could drop, you know, a hundred points if she has to pass the first contact or, you know, and, and little things like that and just tendencies and we would look for and, and just kind of go from there from that. But yeah, so it was a, it was a lot of process of, um, learning to get our inputter up to date a lot of work with our it department at the schools because when you have you know universities buying computers and stuff like that they don't want computers to do what they're not supposed to do but a lot of uh you know figuring out how to you know partition windows into a mac so we were literally running windows on a mac and and doing all that sort of stuff and our it guys are like what you can't do that like yes you can't <laughs> well, oh. why don't you just get a Dell? Well, because we need the Mac for the video. <laughs> yeah, oh man, all of that sort of stuff. So, uh, and I know you mentioned that was around like 2014 was the last time in Oklahoma. I do want to go back because, for my own selfish reasons, I want to know how the origin was. USA Beach High Performance. I think you started around 08 and were there for for around 10 years or more, but. Uh, what were the early conversations there? Because I think a lot of people who love beach volleyball love that you don't really need a coach. And I'm wondering how a country like USA decided, you know what, we're going to have a training facility and we're going to have centralized training and we're going to have all these coaches. Like, was it easy to get built up or did you guys feel a lot of resistance from the community when you did get it going? Um, so I was part of being involved with uh, the indoor program in Colorado Springs. I was kind of springboarded into the high performance department. So I coached a lot of the indoor high performance stuff, you know, during the summers, um, you know, growing up on the beach and, and playing on the beach and coaching on the beach. It, once the beach conversation opened, uh, you know, I was lucky enough to kind of meet the right people and, and I don't want to say insert myself, but, you know, be a part of the conversation. How do we grow this? What do we do? How do we, um, you know, continue to make this stronger. At that point in time, I was coaching at uh, UCF, and there was a indoor like North Seca or something that was being hosted there, and USA Beach was there also. So, you know, got to meet at that point in time. It was Ali Wood Lamberson uh, who was running the program, and she was an assistant at USC. And an assistant at, you know, at Tulane University, and has won a couple national championships, um, you know, back at USC again, and got to know her really well, and get involved with. Okay, let's run a camp in Orlando in conjunction with this tournament, and let's take the kids from this camp to watch the tournament. Um, it was it was unique 
in the aspect that where it was still very new. So there wasn't a lot of pushback per se, because it, there weren't a ton of beach opportunities for coaching. A lot of the beach that the kids play was more grassroots. Like I'm going to go with my parents down to Santa Monica and I'm going to set the ball from below my armpits because if I don't, I'm going to get called. And you know, like these kids just got good at this, like Misty May, like went with Butch Bay down to the beach and just played beach. So, you know, a lot of athletes like that that grew up around it and got to know it pretty well. Um, but for, you know, the other kids, they just, they didn't know it. You know, it was a lot of, Oh, I can't handset cause I'm going to get called. And, you know, I can't do this. I can't do that. It was a lot of, you know, kind of how I learned how to play beach. Um, so was able to kind of start to almost piggyback off of the indoor experience and kind of, you know, initially we mirrored it off of the indoor high performance. Okay. So we're going to do a, you know, an A2 camp in Chula Vista, or we'll do this camp in Florida. Um, you know, we'll, have this evaluation in Clearwater, um, you know, things along those lines. And, you know, just kind of like there's a USA pipeline tryout per se. So like if you want to be recognized under the, you know, sort of the USA umbrella, come to this tryout and, you know, get involved with the system. You know, you go to this tryout, you're invited to this camp in Hermosa or, you know, this camp in Virginia Beach. And it just kind of slowly grew from there. Um, I think where there was a lot of craziness was when the NCAA first decided that they wanted to implement beach volleyball. And I think a lot of the indoor coaches were initially very, very hesitant that, oh, beach volleyball is going to steal athletes from the indoor side. And at that point in time, the beach volleyball athletes that were good and being recruited were not your indoor good kids, if that makes sense. Um, you could take a five, seven kid who has every shot in the world and good court vision, and she's going to beat the crap out of the 10, seven touchers on the indoor side. You know, you bring those kids to the indoor and, you know, those indoor kids to the beach and they are not competing at the same level as a kid who understands how to move the ball around and how to pass to a specific location and, you know, run a back set and, and, you know, put a ball here versus I pass here, set me high. I, the ball. So I think that was kind of the, we ran into more hesitation, I think from the NCAA initially, or from some of the coaches that didn't really understand that. Like when I coached, uh, when I was at UCF, I coached a U14 and U15, like back to back, like club national championships. And my kids on that top team would go out to the beach and lose to like the third team. So if like this was the one team, we had a third team and those kids were all beach kids and they would just get destroyed on the beach. But you took them indoor and it was, you know, 25, nine, you know, the indoor versus beach. So, um, it was just kind of, a keeping it growing, keeping it, you know, I think initially there was a big, a big stronghold in the South Bay, well, you know, kind of like your Hermosa Redondo Manhattan beach kids who were kind of the, kind of the pinnacle. Um, but as we started to be able to go out and, you know, introduce it to say, Hey, we're going to do a HP camp in Texas, or we're going to do a, you know, a high performance camp in Florida, Virginia beach, wherever it is it started to bring up the level. And I mean, now you see like, you know, these top tier recruits that are coming from, you know, North Carolina. Uh, I mean, there's kids out of Ohio that are, you know, five-star recruits on the beach volleyball side because they're starting to understand that it's, it really was a big push and it's not the same sport, if you will, I guess. So, you know, there's a lot of very similar skills but, you know, the application and, and things along those lines are very different. Um, and, and I don't know. So that was, it was, I kind of went off on a tangent there. I don't really know where I just went. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, it's good to hear that uh, obviously beach creates uh, opportunities for athletes who might not have uh, some of the, uh, I don't know, skill sets that, that indoor kind of attracts, right? Like a uh, different size, different skill stuff. But uh, I am curious uh, going through the USA program, 
what do you do with an athlete who does both? Like, what was the the view on like a TJ DeFalco or, or maybe the Crab Brothers or Triborn that that could play at both uh, indoor and beach? Like, uh, was there ever any, any conflict? Because obviously, eventually you got to pick one. We're we're both working in the Canadian system, and obviously we fight over athletes. But I'm curious, uh, TJ DeFalco. Uh, I don't know if many people remember before he was winning VNLs, he was definitely a beach guy, right? Oh God, I yeah he. And that actually kind of goes back to one of the, the funny stories I was thinking about. <laughs> but yeah, I, but all those guys get there. It's a different beast. I think on the men's side, I think the men's side versus the women's side is very, very different. I think the, the men's side is way more balanced. Like you can have a great indoor player and the great beach player, and it's much much smaller gap. Whereas I think on the women's side, a great indoor player is not necessarily a great beach player. It's, you know, so like your, your DeFalcos, your crabs, like they're kind of an anomaly. Whereas on the women's side, you're not taking a, I, I don't know, Megan Hodge, you know, who played at Penn state and won four, you know, national championships on the indoor side, you put her on the beach and she's not exactly in her comfort zone. It's, I think it's a different type of game um especially i mean the men's side the men uses the international sub rule you know the six and one so you know i think the men's side is you know for lack of a term you know a little bit more overall developed when it comes to that sort of stuff where on the women's side is significantly more you know you are what your role is you know i'm a middle so i play middle or you know i'm a ds so i pass and serve maybe or I'm a libero. So I, you know, pass take set kind of thing. Um, we didn't really find, you know, in a lot of those kids, you know, DeFalco was an A1 kid, you know, so it was kind of like, yeah, you're just one of the best. Uh, you know, I don't recall the crabs and, and try really kind of being involved with USA. Not when I was there. Um, it just really wasn't as big of a thing. Um, you know, like you said on the, on the women's side, it was, you had, you know, your good beach players were your good beach players. It wasn't that same crossover from the indoor side. You know, there were a few random ones, um, you know, of course, whose names I, I can't remember right now. Uh, I think I did some USA stuff with Lila Frederick, who, ended up playing, you know, beach at USC, who also played indoor at USC. Um, Gina Urango was another one who we did some indoor stuff with, who ended up being a very, very good beach player in the day, but it wasn't as much of a, you're going to lose a really good indoor kid to the beach, you know, because it was such a big transition. I think from what they were used to on the women's side, for sure. Like those kids yeah. were like uh, 10 years behind some of the kids who've just been playing beach. Well, I think the ability to play beach year round. And like you mentioned, the the USA indoor rules are pretty specialized where I'm not saying Kelly Clay's uh, Kelly Chang now couldn't play indoor, but I think she's more suited for the beach where um, Justine Wong Aranta is the, the libero. Obviously she played a lot of beach growing up, but uh, plays libero sure. indoor. So, I mean, me trying to picture Sarah Hughes playing outside hitter in indoor isn't going to happen, but what a dominant beach player, right? Like it's, for sure. But like, like I said, that the, when I was coaching that 14 and 15s team, like one of my really good friends was coaching for Mizuno Long Beach and Sarah Hughes, Justine, like they were on that team. And then that was kind of like the big, when Sarah decided to give up indoor at 16, everybody was like, what? Like this kid's so phenomenal. And that was like the first big, oh my gosh this kid's giving up indoor to play beach. She's 16 years old. And obviously she's gone on to not have a terrible, you know, start to her career. You know, she's still going pretty strong and doing some good things. So, but yeah, I mean, you know, at the end of the day, I think no matter what, like, you know, Justine was a phenomenal beach player and probably still is, but you know, as, as the game has evolved, you know, defenders are five eleven, six foot now, you know, defenders aren't five, six. You know, on the men's side, defenders are 6'5", six, 6'6". Six, six. You know, defenders aren't 6'1 anymore. It's just the game's evolving. And that was, you know, 10 years ago. And uh, just to jump one step forward, because I'm sure a few listeners are just like, 
hey, I thought this guy was the team Alberta coach. How did he get to Canada? So let, let's jump ahead again. I know the timeline makes no sense here. We got lost along the way, but we just found our way back. Uh, what, uh, what changed in your journey that you ended up uh, coming to Canada and started your coaching career with us? All right. So my, uh, I met my wife while she was doing her undergrad down in Florida. Um, my wife's originally from the Toronto area. And, um, you know, met her while she was doing her undergrad and the relationship kind of evolved and blossomed as they do. Um, I was coaching at St. Leo University down in Florida at the time, and we kind of knew that her med school was going to be finishing up. So I left that university. I moved to um, the club in Seattle, um, Dick Kine, which uh, was run by Chris Hanneman. Um, we had a great beach career as well. Um, COVID hit and ended up moving up to Vancouver to hang out with her because everything was only shut down for 30 days is what they told everybody. And, um, you know, from there she was matched with a program here at university of Calgary. So she's doing her residency here in radiology and has brought me now to Calgary. And we've been here for three years now. Very cool. So you bounce around a little bit out of all the Canadian cities to land to uh, Calgary is pretty exciting in terms of the, the volleyball atmosphere there, but also as an indoor beach facility, which are more rare and rare in Canada. But uh, I'm curious, how did you get your foot in the door in the scene? Did you, did you meet Don Saxon or Ben Saxon? Or what was your first introduction to Alberta volleyball? Uh, first introduction to Alberta volleyball, actually, um, my old beach partner, um, he, I played against him. Uh, he played at Ball State and played against him a ton on the indoor side when we were at the university level. But um, we were both coaching at uh, a couple of universities and ended up in Orlando together. We were playing um, the beach tour in Florida. Um, I'm not really sure how it happened, but he ended up meeting somebody from Florida or from Calgary and would come up here and do camps during the summer. And I ended up meeting uh, and the guy who runs the camps here, Carson Stanjack, he runs hit volleyball, which is kind of was like the first camp thing or a camp group that did a lot of, you know, I guess, sort of satellite camps. So hit works out of Calgary. They do Lethbridge, um, Grand Prairie. They go up to Dawson Creek, BC, you know, Slave Lake, and they're kind of all over the place. So I met him at um, my buddy's wedding <clears throat> and sort of kept in touch with him. When we found out that we were going to be doing the residency here, I called Karsten right away. I was like, hey, I'm moving to Calgary. So ended up meeting him, um, worked some camps for him, through him, met the owner of the beach facility, uh, the indoor facility here, who introduced me to Ben, um, started talking with Ben, and how could I get involved with the NBVL, which is a league that he runs up here. and. You know, how could I coach some teams? And then, of course, COVID kind of resurged and everything got shut down. Um, and just kind of, you know, through, you know, a long, you know, process, kept in touch with Ben, kept in touch with, you know, some of these athletes um, ended up meeting the owner of a team, you know, for those of the people who aren't really uh, familiar with how the MBVL is run. There are teams who have owners. There's a draft. Um, you know, they have a men's and a women's side of it. So, uh, you know, was able to kind of stay involved with them and through them met a few athletes, you know, got to know the athletes well, you know, and athletes are like, well, I want to play beach volleyball. And I'm like, that should be your partner. So grabbed, uh, you know, a couple athletes, put them together. That was Devin and Adriel, who, you know, and, you know, just kind of started working with them as much as I could on the beach. Um, you know, met a few parents, coached a couple kids, things evolved. And, you know, we started with 20 kids their first summer, uh, in the club. And I think we were up to 47 this year. So, you know, and that was year three of, you know, running the summer program there and just staying involved with the, the NBVL. Um, you know, I, I had a chance to coach Ben and Grant before, uh, before, you know, their retirement and, you know, they stepped off the international stage and, you know, working with them, which was an amazing experience. And, you know, working with athletes like that was, you know, phenomenal. And, you know, the things that they could do on the court was kind of fun to, to be able to witness day in and day out. And yeah, you know, um, 
met, you know, through them again, was just like, how do I meet the Alberta guy? So met Ray Sewell, who, you know, was a former team Canada athlete and, you know, I had a chance to, to just introduce myself to him and, you know, express my interest. Hey, I've worked with the Florida region and their high performance department, which is, you know, a very similar, you know, program to team Alberta, uh, you know, what can I do to get involved? And, you know, it's just kind of evolved from there and, you know, I've been able to build a really good relationship with Ray and, you know, some of the athletes here and just kind of keep it going. Yeah, no, it's definitely cool to hear about. Cause I think, uh, again, with most of our listeners being Canadians, Calgary is definitely in the conversation when you talk volleyball players per capita, but that would mostly be indoor. And I, and I think, uh, it, you see the success of volleyball, Alberta, definitely on the men's and women's side indoors, but, uh, on the beach side it's growing. And I'm curious, um, What's it like being in an environment where people are passionate about volleyball, but beach is still kind of new? Because you just by doing this interview, you've been to Hawaii, you've been to Florida, you've been to California, you've been all over. But uh, now you're in kind of a volleyball hub in Canada. But man, it, it's it's different to some of these guys. Uh, they have no real interest in beach, right? You know, what's funny is, you know, kind of circling back to what you just said is, you know, at, even though I lived in Colorado Springs, I lived in the dorms with all these athletes, you know, both the men's and the women's sides. I feel like it's kind of a, you know, a running joke. It's like, I feel like I've met more former national team athletes since I've moved to Calgary. And, you know, I was involved with USA for, I don't know, 2004 to 2019, 15 years. I've met more national team, like former national team athletes since I've been here. And I think you kind of just hit it. You know, the fact that this is kind of of a hub for volleyball and, you know, I think, you know, Alberta and how strong the, the programs here are is phenomenal. I think, you know, like anywhere else, you're always kind of fighting the elements, you know, and there's a lot of good beach players that are coming out of Wisconsin and Chicago and things along those lines in the States. And it's just a matter of where can we provide opportunities for these athletes to play beach year round? Because when October rolls around, if you're not indoor, you're frozen. And it's, it's kind of like that all the way through, you know, mid to late April, if not even, you know, middle of May. So I think it's just a matter of, you know, having a chance to, to get involved and meet some people that are fired up and excited about it. And, you know, through meeting them and, you know, having a chance to coach some athletes, just, you know, keeping the ball rolling and, you know, how can these athletes introduce us to more athletes or how can these parents, you know, say great things about, Hey, there's some beach volleyball stuff that's happening. You should really look into and, you know, I think I've been very fortunate on that side. Um, I, I got to meet the, you know, without even really realizing the, the president of Volleyball Alberta and, and, you know, get to know him pretty well by just kind of, you know, conversing and hanging out and talking. And like I said, I didn't even know at that time he was the president of Alberta. Um, you know, because so, again, I think it's a pretty small community out here um, and everybody knows everybody and you know, it's definitely very special. And the level is the level of volleyball and the level of volleyball IQ is very, very high. And so it's kind of nice to be able to now implement some of the beach stuff into that as well, for sure. Well, man, this has been great. I know it was mostly surface level and just kind of playing Carmen San Diego and just figuring out where in the world you were at, at certain times. But uh, <laughs> we'll, we'll have to get you back on to take a deeper dive into some of your experiences. But uh, one thing we've made just the closer on the show is to tell a, a funny or unique story where uh, obviously we experienced volleyball at a really high level, but something odd or uh, funny must have happened along the way. So I was hoping you could share one more before we let you go. Oh, man. Uh, I think... <laughs> A funny and unique one, you know, um, I think one of the last tournaments I ever played as an athlete was when, when I was living in Florida, uh, I was in Clearwater and it was, I think we were playing under a hurricane watch because there was something coming through the Gulf of Mexico, which pretty much always happens in August and September. And it just is what it is. And, you know, you're, you just go to the tournament no matter what expecting to play. But, uh, we had, um, if, if you're familiar with kind of watching the news and seeing what like the radar is doing any now on the apps, like when you're watching a hurricane and you just kind of see how they, you know, they, they cycle around themselves in these big circles and these big rain bands would come through. We would be on the beach and the team that was on the north side kind of looking down to the south side because the wind would be blowing. So they're on the good side. And they would literally just be like, nope, time to go. We would all run into, you could see a wall 
of rain just coming. And everybody would run under the tents, grab onto the tents because we knew the rain and the wind was just going to be super crazy. We would hang out for like seven minutes. And then it was sunny again. We would go out, continue the match. Whoever was on the good side again, because the rain was coming our way, the wind was coming, you'd just be like, nope, here we go, back under the tents. And, you know, so it was kind of really cool because you were watching just these bands of rain. It's almost like a cartoon where you see the rain, like in the cloud following somebody. But it was that distinct and that apparent that, okay, this is a wall of rain and wind. Let's, let's go. Everybody grab a corner. Everybody grab a tent. And we're going to hunker down. Like we dropped the tents down. So they weren't even up. It was literally just, you know, like everybody's at that first click and holding them. <laughs> but I think that was probably my as a player, one of those things where you're just like, what were we doing? Why were we even in a hurricane saying we should be playing B12 right now? That's what I'm thinking. I was like, there's no way people from like uh, Ontario, especially because I've been in Ashbridge's Bay where there's like a thunder and lightning delay would stick this out where uh, I wonder if it just normalized at a certain point where you guys are like, oh, this is just normal. We're going to play where like, I, I can't picture myself being like, yeah, every seven minutes we're going to stop and this hurricane's going to spin by. Well, you know, it's funny, too, because, like, for us in, in Tampa especially, we are very dialed into lightning because, you know, Tampa Bay, you know, is the lightning capital of the world. That's why they named the NHL team that, the Tampa Bay Lightning. So we are very dialed into lightning. But it's like, oh, there's no lightning. It's just a hurricane. Who cares? You know, I mean, you've seen you see all the memes about, like, the idiots in Florida. It's like, oh, hurricane coming. All right, let's go to the beer store. And I mean, that's just it's it's no big deal. You just kind of get used to it. You're like, ah, oh, it's a hurricane. It's Friday. Who cares? You know, it is what it is. Unreal. <laughs> There's Unreal. no lightning. We're fine. <laughs> oh, man. Well, thank you so much. Uh, like I said, we've known each other a few years. I had no idea this was your background, and we didn't even get to everything. So uh, hopefully we'll get you back on soon. But uh, thanks for making the time today and sharing all that you did. Appreciate it, man. Thanks for having me on.